If you'll turn with me, please, to Exodus <clears throat> chapter 7. We'll start there. And be verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak to all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he may let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgment. Then turning to 9, verse 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. And then to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, that heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians, and how I performed my signs among them, that you may also know that I am the Lord. Then to verse 11, chapter, I mean, chapter 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And finally to chapter 12, verses 31 to 41. Then he called him up for Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Rise up and get out from among my people, both of you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened. Since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Thank you. Do you believe in miracles? When I say miracles, there are many things that people today would call miracles that are not in the same category as what we see here in these chapters. Uh, someone uh, recovering unexpectedly from an illness certainly can be God's work, but probably is not a miracle in the way that this describes. Someone who 
uh, falls out of a window and doesn't die like we would expect from a very great height, again, perhaps is not in the same category as these things that we see here. But what we see here is something that is unquestionably the power of God demonstrated for a specific purpose in accomplishing the promises that He's made to His people. And when we look at this section, we're familiar with the fact that there are ten plagues, right? But I would, I would urge you to consider what God is doing here in these chapters, both what we looked at last week and what we're looking at this week, more in terms of signs and wonders rather than strictly being fixed on the number of there being ten plagues. The reason that that's important is because God is accomplishing a specific thing in the people of Israel and among the people of Egypt, and it's larger than just these ten judgments that He pours out on the land. And and I'm going to develop that for you further. I have a a chart here that I uh, came up with while I was uh, just trying to map out this passage, and I'll send you guys a copy of it, but there is a lot going on in these chapters. And so what I hope to do today is not necessarily to go exhaustively into every detail, although we can certainly discuss them more this evening. What I want us to do is get the main point of what's going on here. And then next week, plan to go back through and look specifically at the 10th plague and uh, with regard to the Passover and the significance of that in connection with Christ and His coming. And then look at chapters uh, 13 and 14 specifically with God's deliverance of the Israelites. But what we're looking at here is a continuation of what we looked at last week and something that's not really fully complete until the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea and God has poured out His final judgment upon Pharaoh for his pride. But right now, let's start looking here at chapter 7. And the first question that I think would be helpful for us to consider is what is the same and what is different between the signs that Moses and Aaron performed before the Israelites and the signs that they're going to perform before Pharaoh. I think it's important for us to note that there are differences and maybe to think a little bit about why there might be those differences. So we look here in chapter 7 and we see the sign of Aaron throwing down his staff in verses 8 through 13 and then the first of the plagues, the turning of water to blood which these were two of the three signs that God had told Moses and Aaron to perform in the sight of the Israelites. The response of the Israelites was to worship God initially there at the end of chapter 4. Here, we see the response is very different. It is on the part of the magicians to try to duplicate God's work and on the part of Pharaoh and his servants to reject God's authority and to not believe what God is trying to accomplish. But notice, Moses does not perform the sign of leprosy. Where he puts his hand into his coat, takes it back out, his hand is leprous. Why might that be? I think probably one of the best explanations as I was reading through and thinking about this is this idea. For Moses to experience disease when God is going to pour out disease upon the Egyptians as judgment would not support the message that God is intending for Moses and Aaron to convey to Pharaoh. And so that's why only two of the three signs are performed before Pharaoh here at this beginning in chapter 7. In terms of the organizing, what's going on here, there are several different ways that they can be grouped. Sometimes people will group the first three, the second three, the third three, and then the final sign as being a separate thing unto itself. Sometimes they will look at them in terms of... uh, groups of two. For example, we see that the first and second deal with things in the water, blood and frogs. The second two with insects, gnats or lice, and then flies. The, the fifth and sixth deal with disease, pestilence and boils. The next two deal with the sky, hail, and then the wind blowing in the locusts. And then the last two deal with darkness or in the context of darkness. All of these are legitimate ways, perhaps, of categorizing what God is doing here, and there is some measure of significance to each of them. But the main point comes down to not how they are grouped, 
or not necessarily even, as sometimes commentaries have done, which of the gods of Egypt are being punished as God pours out His judgment. The main point is this, behold and fear the Lord for His mighty wonders. And there are three themes sort of woven throughout these chapters that I think that we should notice. And the first of these is, in fact, this idea of God prevailing over the gods. For example, we see in chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, Aaron casts down his staff, and it turns into, we tend to think of it as a serpent. But the word here is translated elsewhere in Scripture as monster, And the Egyptians perhaps would have considered something like the crocodile from the Nile to be that sort of monster. And so when we see a snake swallowing other snakes, it's not unheard of. And certainly God in his power could cause it to happen. But probably what's happening here is Aaron casts down his staff. It turns into a monster, whether it's a crocodile or the form of some monster that the Egyptians revered. They replicate it, again, if it's something like a crocodile, the magicians could have either, by Satan's power, produced the same miracle, or, by trickery, produced the appearance of a miracle, and Pharaoh, looking for a way out of responding to what God had said and believing what God was doing, either one would have sufficed for him to reject what was going on there. But what they could not reject, and what they could not deny was... We threw it down. Aaron swallowed it up. Their God is more powerful than ours. That is unquestionably clear, regardless of those other details. And so that's the first sign, but not necessarily the first plague. What is Pharaoh's response? We see a a change in Pharaoh's response over the course of these chapters. Initially, his response is, verse 13, His heart was hardened. He did not listen as the Lord had said. The next sign, the first of the ten plagues, is the turning of water to blood. Now, there are those who will say that it was not actually turned to blood, but that it was polluted in some way. For example, there are certain algae or bacterial blooms in water that will corrupt it and pollute it and cause all the fish to die and all of those sorts of things. I don't think that there's any reason for us to say it couldn't have been actual blood, but again, the point is the same. God does something that attacks this thing that the Egyptians worship, the mighty Nile River, their source of life, water for their crops, fish to feed them, all of these sorts of things, pollutes it, turns it foul. They can't touch it for seven days because it's so corrupted. The Egyptian magicians do something similar. Whatever it is they do, whether by trickery or whether by the power of Satan, they replicate the turning to blood. What is Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh's response is, I'm not going to pay attention. Verse 23, he turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. And so the Egyptians resort to digging themselves new wells to try to get groundwater that's not corrupted like the Nile is, by, by blood, by, by foulness. And a week goes by, verse 25. Some have been taken because chapter 7, verse 25 says seven days passed between uh, the first and the second plagues is that there is a week that passes between each of the plagues. The text doesn't say that, but it's probably a reasonable assumption to see this as taking place over several months and the particular time of year late winter into early spring based on what's said later in the plagues with regard to the harvest and when we know the Israelites actually went out. So the first plague, we see the water turn to blood. We see Pharaoh's response. It's not bothering me. I have people to deal with this. I'm going to turn and go into my house. I have no reason that I have to respond to what this God and his representatives have said. So then comes the second plague. Frogs. And for those of you who love frogs or find them fascinating, it's one thing to go observe them out in nature or keep them in a glass box in your house. It's another to have them swarming all over in your food, in your clothing, in the place where you sleep, in 
everywhere. And this wasn't something that only affected the people in general. This wasn't something that Pharaoh could be insulated from. It was that it came up all over the land of Egypt. It would go even into Pharaoh's house itself on you and on your people, chapter 8, verse 4, and on all your servants. Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate the sign, but there's a problem. Being able to produce frogs and being able to produce more frogs is not as big of a deal as being able to get rid of the frogs. So Pharaoh's response changes from chapter 7, verse 23, no concern even to this, to chapter 8 and verse 8, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice. Moses says, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you that the frogs be destroyed and left only in the Nile? Then he said, Tomorrow. This theme is going to come up over and over again in these plagues. Here, it's Pharaoh's request. When will it take place? Later on, it's God's word. This will happen tomorrow. This will happen tomorrow. This will happen tomorrow. And it happens as God had said. And so in God's prevailing over the gods of Egypt, there are several other things going on. One is the certainty of God's word. Another is the certainty of God's word in the faithfulness of his promise. All these things he's been saying to Moses, he's now carrying out. He said, Moses, you're going to tell Pharaoh what to do, and Pharaoh's heart's going to be hardened, and he's not going to do what you're telling him to do. And that's exactly what's taking place. This is going to be the occasion for God pouring out these plagues and these judgments on Egypt. Why? As we saw from our scripture reading this morning, so that they'll know who is the true Lord, who is the true God. At the end, we'll talk about this question of whether or not they actually believe in God. But for right now, let's continue seeing how God prevails and, as, and see the development and the change in Pharaoh's response. Next comes the plague of flies after... The frogs are removed, according to Moses crying to the Lord, chapter 8 and verse 12. But even in the removal of the frogs, God doesn't just zap them out of the land and the land is free from any trouble. What happens? Verse 13, the frogs died. They piled them in heaps. The land became foul. These plagues are not only an insult to the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, they are a corruption upon the land, which... Uh, in the, the hymn that we sang first this morning, worshiping dead idols. Sometimes we think, well, it's just, they're not worshiping the true God, but there is a foulness and a corruption and a perversion that is associated with idolatry, and God is portraying that in graphic form before the eyes of the Egyptians to show them, your gods are empty, they're powerless, your land is being destroyed because of your sinfulness. Next comes the plague of flies, or of lice. Uh, depending on translation, may say gnats, may say lice. Uh, there's something that's, that's crawling on man and beast. The dust of the earth become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Notice the change in the response of the magicians. Verse 18, they tried to bring forth gnats but could not, so there were gnats or lice on man and beast. What's their response? Verse 19, this is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not listen to them as the Lord had said. We see throughout the progression of these plagues, God will say, stretch out your hand, stretch out your staff, and there's this imagery of the hand or the staff being stretched out, and then God does the thing that he's going to do. But in other cases, it just says God causes it to happen. And so as we go down through here, uh, it is Aaron's staff for the first three, then it is the Lord for the next two, then Moses and Aaron, then Moses for the last three, and then it says the Lord does the final plague, the tenth plague. Is there a particular significance to all of this? The reality is that God can work these miracles, these signs, these plagues, with or without Moses. I mean, the God who created the universe could simply speak and cause them to be, but in many of these cases, he's working through his servant Aaron and Moses and as we see, this is demonstrating both to the Egyptians and to the Israelites that Moses is the appointed leader that God's going to use to bring them out of the land. So we've looked at the first three plagues. We come to the next one, which is flies. And there are some who will translate this word instead of flies as beasts. 
as in wild animals, some of the uh, paintings or drawings or accounts will talk about an idea of wild beasts ravaging the land and, and killing the livestock. But given the parallelism with the other uh, things of uh, things from the water and then insects and then disease and then things from the sky, I think it's probably better to understand this as pestilence or as flies. Uh, the word itself simply means things which swarm. And so that's why there's some confusion or discussion about it. What is the response of Pharaoh to these things? His response, verse 25 of chapter 8, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. So at first it was, I don't want, I'm not going to pay any attention. Then it was, please take it away. Now it is, well, you can sacrifice, but only in the land. So look at Moses' response, chapter 8, verse 26. It's not right to do so, for we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we do this, will they not stone us? We must go a three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he commands us. What's Pharaoh's hesitation going to be with accepting this, not even a request, but statement by Moses? If they go three days in the wilderness, what's likely not going to happen? His entire workforce is going to leave, and it's not likely they're going to come back. And so for, for Pharaoh to let them go three days' journey in the wilderness, he's going to have to admit and acknowledge and be willing for his entire slave labor force to go and be gone. And he's not willing to accept that. He says in verse 28, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. It's somewhat bizarre as we go through these chapters that Pharaoh will say things like, make supplication for me or bless me. And you have to ask yourself, what level of blindness is there to his own disobedience that he's saying, make request or supplication for me, ask your God to bless me. But if we think about it from the perspective of the ancient world, Pharaoh is probably simply hedging his bets. Right? He's saying, this God might be more powerful than these other gods that I've worshipped. I don't believe he's the one true God, but just in case... You seem to be serving him. You seem to have a connection with him. Why don't you go ahead and, and make sacrifices to him, pray to him on my behalf? That way, if he turns out to be more powerful, he can't be so angry at me. And if he's not, I haven't lost anything either way. And we'll talk, as I said in a few moments, about this question of belief and true or false repentance. But I don't think this is a sign of faith in Pharaoh. It's just Pharaoh trying to make sure that he's covered on all fronts. The response of Moses, I will make supplication, the flies may depart, don't deal deceitfully. Moses makes supplication, the Lord removes the swarms of flies, not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and did not let the people go. What comes next? A pestilence. And we see here in verse 4, an important point, which is perhaps the second major theme that runs through these plagues, these signs. Chapter 9, verse 4, The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. We're going to see this demonstrated with the flies, with the pestilence, with the hail, with the locusts, and even with the final judgment, the death of the firstborn. Uh, I skipped over it in, uh, there at the end of chapter 8, verse 23. I'll make a division between my people and your people. We see it again here with the flies. There's this theme introduced that there is a separation or a difference between what's happening to the Israelites and what's happening to the Egyptians. God is pouring out judgment on the Egyptians. God is preserving and protecting the Israelites. So think about this. Here's a portion of the land where no disaster is happening and the rest of the land is being corrupted and judged and laid waste. 
the text does not specifically say that the lice or the water turned to blood or the frogs or those sorts of things were only in the land of Egypt as clearly as it does with the flies and the pestilence and some of these others. But the fact that God is making a distinction in these cases I think is an indication that God's making a distinction all throughout these plagues. He's preserving, protecting, upholding His people and pouring out judgment on the Egyptians at the same time. What happens with this pestilence? Verse 5 of chapter 9, the Lord set a definite time. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing. Verse 6, the Lord did this thing on the next day. All the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. If they've got a multitude of flocks and herds, think about how remarkable it is that not one of them dies for any reason on that particular day. And all around, all of these, all over the land of Egypt, are dead. Now, this raises a problem for us, right? Because the hail kills livestock a few plagues later. So how can the hail kill the livestock if the livestock are all already dead? And how can there be uh, flocks and herds even at the very end of the plague when the Israelites are, are leaving? Part of the answer of that would be that God had preserved the flocks and herds of the Israelites and they're taking them out of the land. But that doesn't answer the problem about how can there be livestock for the hail to kill. And probably the best explanation would be the word here that's rendered uh, all the livestock of Egypt. Um, that word in some places is translated all kinds of or all sorts of or all over, that kind of idea. So it's not necessarily that every last animal in the land of Egypt died, but that all throughout the land of Egypt there are dead animals. So then what comes next? There has been affliction of water and frogs and lice and flies and pestilence. And now in chapter 9, verse 8, there is this affliction, this plague of boils. What happens? They throw this dust, this soot from a kiln into the sky. It becomes boils, breaking out with sores on man and beast. What's going on with the magicians now? Verse 11, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Again, there's a recognition, God's superiority over the gods and magicians and power of Egypt. What's Pharaoh's response? Verse 12, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then we come to the section that was in our scripture reading. The, verse 13, we didn't read. The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. But what happens? Pharaoh still has not listened. He has not answered with the proper answer and so next comes the plague of hail and a warning verse 19 chapter 9 verse 19 send bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety every man and beast in the field that is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die the one among the servants of pharaoh who feared the word of the lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses but he who paid no regard to the word of the lord left his servants and his livestock in the field this brings us to our third theme that we see sort of woven throughout this section. And that's this question. True versus false repentance. Which one do we see demonstrated in these chapters? Do we see genuine belief? Last week we talked about the idea that God wanted to be believed and obeyed, starting with Moses specifically. But this broadens out to what God is doing not only in Moses and Aaron, and not only in the Israelites, but also among all of the Egyptians. Chapter 9, verse 16 said that God was doing these things to proclaim His name throughout all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14, so that you may know there was no one like me in all the earth. It seems that in these chapters that there are three groups of people. There are those who outright reject God's word, 
Pharaoh himself, there are those who begin to believe that God is at least a powerful God, although perhaps not the powerful God, the only God. And then there are the Israelites themselves who believe in God as the one true God. And I think it's that middle group that we see highlighted in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. Notice it does not say that they feared the Lord, but they feared the word of the Lord, as in they believed at least this statement that God had said. There's perhaps some parallel to the statement of the magicians in chapter 8, verse 19, when they say, this is the finger of God. And what we will see as we continue here uh, in chapter 10, verse 7, Pharaoh's servants say, How long will this man be a snare to us? Do you let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God? Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? At the very least, there are a group of people among the Egyptians who recognize that this deity is destroying their land, that he is a powerful God, and that it would do them well to at least pay attention to the warnings that are being given. Is that the same thing as genuine belief? Think about Pharaoh himself. He starts out, I have no regard for what God is doing, to pray to God for me. Later on, he's going to actually finally let the people go. But if you remember back what it said a few chapters ago, what did God say was going to happen? Pharaoh would let the people go under compulsion. Pharaoh did not let the people go because he says, God is the one true God, and I want to obey and follow him. Pharaoh lets them go because God has devastated his land and poured out his judgment, and he has no choice. And so did Pharaoh ever demonstrate true belief? Pharaoh drowns in the Red Sea in a final attempt to undo the command that he gives when the Israelites start to go out of the land and God's judgment is complete on Pharaoh and his army. What about these people who are within the land? Did they actually demonstrate a saving or true conversion type of belief in God? I don't think the text says specifically. I think one of the things in the text that would perhaps argue against this would be the fact of people who are um, continuing to experience this judgment even after some of them take their livestock and their servants into shelter during this plague. There's also this uh, question of in Chapter 12, verse 30, there is no home in which there was not someone dead among all the Egyptians. And so I think we would say that the vast majority of the Egyptians did not truly believe in God's word and continued to experience all of these plagues. Could God have saved someone from among the Egyptians? There's this reference to this mixed multitude in chapter 12 that goes up with them. Are some of these perhaps Egyptians or Egyptian Israelites who had married and lived together who are, um, have some measure of belief in God, but perhaps not a full devotion to Him? We'll see that as we go through the book that the mixed multitude creates problems for the people of Israel. Again, the question of true versus false repentance is perhaps one of the most important questions from these chapters. If you see the signs that God performs and you continue to reject God, what does that say about the state of your heart? If you see the signs that God performs and you temporarily pray to God, ask God for relief, and then you go right back to your sin, what does that say about the status of your relationship with God? Because we want to believe that God poured out judgment on the Egyptians because they were sinners and they worshipped idols and all of those sorts of things, and we see in ourselves the Israelites who are being delivered. We don't see in ourselves the Egyptians who are being punished. But I would argue that there are parallels in our hearts and in our lives 
with the unbelief of Pharaoh and the Egyptians more often than we would like to admit. Not to say we're not God's people, but simply to say when we come to the New Testament, Matthew 12, Jesus addresses the crowds who are seeking more signs, more wonders. And he says the only sign you're going to receive is the sign of Jonah, which is the picture of his death and resurrection. And he says in various places, if Sodom and Gomorrah and all these other places, if Nineveh itself had seen the miracles that I performed among you, they would have believed long ago. Why do I bring that up? Because if we have all the testimony about God and who He is in this book, and we persist in sin and make excuses for sin and act like it's not a big deal and make false shows of repentance and keep going back to that sin, then as it says elsewhere in Scripture, the proverb is true. The dog returns to its vomit, the sow, the pig to wallowing in the muck. And if that is the lifelong pattern that is observed in us, we have to question whether we truly know God. And why do I say this? I'm not trying to get you in here to doubt your salvation if you genuinely know God, but so many times and so many people are deceived because they think, I went to church as a kid. I know the Bible stories. I memorized the verses. I can sing the songs. I can dress in a particular way. I can do all of the Christian sorts of things. I don't do all the things that Christians shouldn't do. And then they get to be 18, 19, 20, and they never step foot in a church again. Why is that? Because for some who grow up in our churches, there has never been true repentance. And perhaps in us, there has not been a godly model of true repentance because sometimes, like Pharaoh, we'll do just enough so that we feel like God's not angry with us, and then we'll go back to doing the same sort of sinful things that we know we shouldn't go back to. And so when we come to a passage like this, if we just say, you know, God delivered the Israelites, and that's amazing, and we should be excited about that, and we don't stop and think about the realities of repentance, we've not really read what this is about. Because why does God do these things? to demonstrate His power over the gods as He fulfills His promises, to show the distinction between the way that He works in deliverance for His people and judgment for those who are not His people, and to show this reality of true versus false repentance that you can go through the motions. You can, as the Egyptians do, replicate some of the signs, the outward appearances of having God's power, which perhaps is what Jesus talks about when he says there are those who uh, say, did we not do these wonders in your name? Didn't we do all of these things? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Or in Hebrews where it says those who have, who have tasted of the power of the Spirit and of the good life to come and yet are, are turned aside, how can there be any hope of renewing them to repentance? There is a measure of external participation in following after God and in the power of God and all of those sorts of things that is possible for someone who does not know God to experience. That ought to frighten us. That ought to stir us to examine our hearts and say, by God's grace, may it be true that I actually know you. And, and when, I, when I see sin in my life, that I would genuinely repent from it, not just sort of go through the motions and and say I'm sorry, and then do the same thing again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. If you're a Christian, and you say, you know what, 
I can't spend time with God because I'm watching TV and pursuing my hobbies and doing all these things that I want to do. We ought not be content for that to be the case going on and on, day after day, month after month, year after year. At some point, we ought to say, there's something wrong with this. We don't bow down to frogs and to the Nile River and to all of these other sorts of things that the pagans did, so we think we're better than them. But idolatry lurks in the heart of every one of us. And so what is it in your life that draws you away from God? I'm not saying that you can never watch TV, never play a board game, never go enjoy working outside in your yard, never go fishing or, or shopping or any other. I'm not saying those things are in and of themselves in every instance sinful, but far too often those things are far more important to us than our relationship with God. And perhaps in part, that is because we repent like Pharaoh did, which is to say we make a show of repentance and we don't actually hate sin and we don't actually seek to turn from it. We didn't finish out the plagues here. Hail. What happens? Verse 25, chapter 9. The hail struck all that was in the field throughout all the land of Egypt, man and beast, every plant of the field, shattered every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Pharaoh makes an interesting response in light of what I just said. Verse 27, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. This looks like he said he was sinful and he asked for forgiveness and now he's going to obey God. How do we know that that was not the case? Verse 34, When Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go. So what's the test of true repentance? It's not, do I ask forgiveness after I do wrong? It's, do I work at stopping the sin that I had to ask forgiveness for? Because if I keep doing the sin over and over and over again, I keep asking forgiveness over and over and over again, and I don't really have any desire to get rid of the sin, I'm acting a lot more like Pharaoh than I ought to. Moses was not deceived by Pharaoh's words, verse 30, as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Why is God doing all these things? so that his name will be proclaimed, so the Egyptians will know that he is the Lord, and so that and perhaps some of them would fear the Lord. The next plague, the plague of locusts. As we read in our scripture reading, why is he doing these things? Not just for the Egyptians, but so the Israelites will tell their children and their grandchildren and their descendants after them what the Lord had done. How many times does this come up in the rest of the Old Testament as a rebuke to the Israelites, as a sign of God's power? Over and over and over again, God says to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt. All of the plagues, all of the signs, all of these things, this is who I am. So do you think I can feed you in the wilderness? Do you think I can provide water for you? Do you think I can help you defeat your enemies when you get into the land? Do you think when the Egyptians come against you later on, hundreds of years later, that you don't need to ally yourself with the Assyrians or with the Babylonians against the Egyptians because God is powerful enough. If he defeated Egypt, then he can defeat Egypt now. This comes up over and over again. So God didn't just do this to pour out judgment on the Egyptians. He did it to demonstrate himself to his people. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh again. How long will you refuse to humble yourself? The locust will come if you do not. Chapter 10 and verse 8. Pharaoh seems to pay attention to the warning. Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones who are going? There's the catch. He doesn't want everyone to go. Moses says, We'll go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. 
Then he said, Thus may the Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Take heed, for evil is in your mind. The Hebrew is difficult here in verse 10. The sense of it is basically this. Oh yeah, your God will be with you if you ever leave, but I have no intention of that ever happening. That's kind of the gist of what's being said there in verse 10. How do we know? Verse 11, Not so. Go now the men and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh says, All right, the men can go sacrifice, but the women and children and the flocks, those need to stay here. Why is that important? They're going to come back. You're not going to leave your family behind. Pharaoh still has control over them. God sends the locusts. They eat every plant of the field, verse 12, even all that the hail had left. Verse 15, they covered the surface so the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees. Thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Again, the false repentance, verse 16. Pharaoh hurriedly called for Moses and Aaron, I've sinned against the Lord of your God and against you. Therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and make supplication to the Lord your God that he would only remove this death from me. Which is ironic in light of what's going to take place in chapter 12. God sends a wind. It drives the locusts into the Red Sea. Not one is left, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the sons of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand to have darkness over the land of Egypt. (coughs) Three days there was darkness. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. God's power in saying it's going to be dark here and light there. God's making a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And God giving Pharaoh yet a further opportunity to repent, which he does not take. Verse 24, he says, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. What has Moses been saying this whole time? We need to go sacrifice to the Lord. How are they going to sacrifice without the animals to sacrifice. Which is what he says in verse 25. Our livestock shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Do not Beware, do not see my face again. For the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, you're right, I shall never see your face again. This poses an additional question because Pharaoh is going to call, it seems, Moses and Aaron before him again. Two possible explanations. One is, it's in the darkness of the night, and so he does not see Moses' face. The alternative explanation is, Pharaoh merely sends word to Moses and Aaron in chapter 12 when he says, get out of here. So again, this is not a a contradiction or an error in Scripture. Chapter 11 is the description of what's going to take place in this plague. Chapter 12, we'll deal with next week the details of the Passover lamb and God's deliverance of his people and all of these things and the feast and the memorial. And then we come to the end of the scripture reading this morning, which is the firstborn of all the Egyptians dies. Pharaoh says, leave the people of Egypt, seemingly rise up and say, get out before death consumes us all. They're throwing possessions and riches and provisions and all of these sorts of things at the people of Israel and and pushing them out of the land. As I mentioned, in chapter 14, Pharaoh pursues after them. And I'll just read those verses for you because I think it's kind of the end of this arc of the story. It says in chapter 14, verses 30 and 31, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Do you believe in God's supernatural power? Not do you believe in God's supernatural power to do something over there, or even that you see it yourself and then you keep doing things exactly the way you've been doing them up to this point, do you see God's supernatural power? Does it help you to see that God is greater than all other gods, that He keeps His promises, that He distinguishes between His people and other people in terms of His blessing and His judgment, 
that He calls you to true instead of false repentance. If you see God's miracles in light of those themes from these chapters, then at least to some degree, God's purpose in doing these things and in recording these things has been accomplished. So what's the starting point? If you've never truly turned away from your sin, your false gods, the things that you worship, which, let's be honest, the Nile River is far more impressive than a car which rusts in Michigan or a bank account that gets drained in a day when the stock market crashes or all of the other sorts of things which we worship. And if God could deal with the Nile River and bend it to His will, you think He can do it with those other things? Those are empty gods. Don't worship them. Turn away from those gods. Turn to the Lord. And continue that process of repentance because God is greater than all other gods. God can preserve you in the midst of whatever may come. Think about what it says in Thessalonians. Jesus who delivers us from God's coming wrath. God delivered the Israelites from His wrath when He poured out His wrath on the Egyptians. God will deliver His church from the coming wrath when He pours out His wrath on the world. So what was true for them is true for us if we believe in Jesus today. And don't ever stop repenting. Don't think, I'm arri- I've arrived, I'm done. Even Paul, who was not perfect, but whom we often hold up, said, I have not yet finished my course until the very end in 2 Timothy. He says, I haven't finished my course. In Philippians, he says, I press on toward the mark. So, lots of things in these chapters. But the important thing is this. Behold and fear the Lord for His mighty wonders. Because the same God that did them then is the same God who's at work in you today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would call us to true repentance not because if we have begun to trust in You, we need to get saved again or something like that, but because so often we become blind to our sin, we act in ways exactly like Pharaoh did, and we should never be comfortable in that sort of state. Lord, sometimes I think we don't fear You as we should because we don't see how great of a God You are. And looking through a passage like this, we are reminded again of your power, of your mercy. You sent ten plagues, not one. You gave opportunities for the Egyptians to repent. You abundantly demonstrated your power to the Israelites, and still they will grumble in the wilderness in the stories that are to come that we'll look at. Still they often rejected Moses' leadership and questioned your goodness and all of these sorts of things. And so, Lord... Keep turning our eyes to the greatness of who you are, of your power, of your purpose in our lives, so that we do not forget, so that we learn these lessons from the Old Testament and serve you faithfully as your people today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.